Welcome to The Permanent Things, a conversation about the liberal arts and about the great books and the big ideas that have shaped the Western world. My name's Ben Myers. I'm a professor in the Western Civilization Sequence, part of the core curriculum at Oklahoma Baptist University. In his 1784 essay, Answering the Question, What is the Enlightenment?, Immanuel Kant proclaimed that, Enlightenment is man's emergence from his self-incurred immaturity. And he challenged his fellow Europeans with the motto, Sapere Ade, Dare to Know. Thinkers of the 18th century Enlightenment, men like Voltaire, Diderot, and Thomas Paine, saw themselves as bringers of light into the dark European mind, chasing away the shadows of tradition and the cobwebs of superstition. Many of our dominant conceptions even today regarding the almost unquestioned good of progress and of innovation stem from this period. But was there a cost for this so-called enlightenment? With campus nearly deserted for Thanksgiving break, I spent some time on a quiet afternoon discussing this topic with my colleague, Dr. Tawa Anderson. Tawa Anderson earned his Ph.D. from the Southern Baptist Theological Seminary and is an associate professor of philosophy at OBU, where he is also the assistant director of the honors program. Along with W. Michael Clark and David K. Noggle, Dr. Anderson is the author of An Introduction to Christian Worldview, Pursuing God's Perspective in a Pluralistic World. Tawa Anderson, welcome to The Permanent Things. Thank you for having me, Ben. So along with Michael Clark and David Noggle, you're the author of An Introduction to Christian Worldview. So in a nutshell, what are we talking about when we talk about worldview? Well, we define worldview officially as the conceptual lens through which we see, understand, and interpret the world and our place within it. So the idea is that it's kind of like the conceptual glasses that we wear that affect uh, how we see everything around us, um, our place within it particularly, our heart orientation, the things that we love, that we value, uh, motivation for the things that we do, our actions. So it's important to understand that worldview is not strictly a rational concept. Uh, it's about the way that we are oriented uh, in our heart, soul, and mind toward the world around us. It certainly includes rational concepts and contours, but it's much more than that. So it includes what we think, but also what we love. Yeah, what we love and what we do, right? So oftentimes we'll say that you can tell a person's worldview by looking at the things that they do, which in turn shows you the things that they value, which in turn shows you the things that they understand and believe. So how does the 18th century Enlightenment change what, what was the dominant worldview in the Western world? It's an excellent question, and one which doesn't admit to a simple and straightforward answer. Uh, So understanding that I'm venturing into waters that can't be simplified, I'm going to venture to simplify. The major change, I would say, is the move from a focus on revelation to a focus on reason, where in the pre-modern or pre-enlightenment worldview, The focus was on what God has revealed to us, both through his works and preeminently through his word. 
in the Enlightenment worldview, the focus becomes upon what we can rationally establish. Now, for the early Enlightenment, it's certainly a focus on what we can understand through what God has revealed in nature, but it's on that natural revelation as opposed to special revelation. So, the ideal person changes from a person who in the pre-modern worldview would be someone who acknowledges God and submits to him via his divine revelation in the enlightenment becomes the autonomous human knower the person who stands objectively investigating and understanding the world around them and coming to their own independent conclusions about the way things are and the way that we should live in the world well, it's easy to see in that some possible areas of conflict with church. Um, but what are some areas of agreement, would you say, between the Enlightenment and the Orthodox Christian worldview? Well, there, there certainly have to be a lot. First of all, because the Enlightenment grows out of medieval Christendom. And so it's born out of a deeply Christian worldview. Uh, so a couple of points of connection are the belief that the world is rational and ordered. Right? So if God has created, God has created a world that we can understand and God has endowed us with the ability to investigate and understand the world accurately. And so certainly the Enlightenment embraces that and then builds upon it. Right? So A, we have the rational capacity to understand that's the way God has built us and B, the world is such that we can investigate it and come to true conclusions about the way it is. It's an ordered, structured world created by a rational sensible God who wants us to understand the world and to understand him. We're prone in intellectual history to think then of the Enlightenment and the Church at odds, in a sense. But are there ways in which the Enlightenment shaped the Church for better or for worse in the modern age? Certainly the Church isn't unchanged by the Enlightenment, and we have to remember that the Church in many ways spawns the Enlightenment, it gives birth to it. So there is going to be a mutual interaction between the two. Some of the focuses that we can see particularly in the Church are the rise of an emphasis on what we would call a natural religion. So that which we can understand about God through pure human reason. Now, part of the reason for this historically, of course, is the Protestant-Catholic wars um, after the Reformation uh, and competing claims to authority, even competing claims to revelation. And what do you do in the aftermath of that? Well, for many very reasonable, sensible, and even devout people, we want to try to sift through what we can understand about God without having to reference one of these kind of two major competing paradigms, uh, you know, with Catholics anathematizing Protestants and Protestants waging war against Catholics, which one is the right divine authority? And so a lot of early Enlightenment thinkers are saying, well, let's figure it out by applying the reason that God has given us. So one of the outcomes that you have in the church is uh, eventually the rise of deism, which is the belief that uh, there is a creator God, but God is more distant now. So God has created, he's wound things up, he's let things go, he's created us with a moral compass, with a desire to know him, uh, but we can know him just again via pure reason and investigation of the world, and if we live in accordance with the moral light that he has given us, then we'll be fine, right? So we we don't need to appeal to, again, special divine revelation in scripture or through the Pope or through Protestant uh, pastors or priests. We can get there on our own. 
So it's easy to see then how the Enlightenment maybe leads to some of the uh, what we would sometimes call liberalizing elements in the church, like the higher criticism and, and things like that. But it seems to me there's also a kind of Enlightenment heritage even in, say, Baptist life or other kind of evangelical uh, circles in, in the way perhaps we read the Bible uh historically, if not according to the higher criticism, is still often emphasizing a kind of literalism that wouldn't have been recognizable, perhaps, before the 18th century. One of the odd ways I think we can see the impact of the Enlightenment, even in our contemporary evangelical church, is what I would call reader-response criticism, or the idea that we can read Scripture independently on our own without needing to reference authority or tradition and understand it perfectly well. Now, this is part of the legacy of individualism of the Enlightenment, as well as the autonomous human knower. Um, you combine that with the Protestant notion of the priesthood of all believers, and you end up having that reduced to the priesthood of the believer, where I am my priest, and I can read scripture, and I can understand it on my own. I don't need anybody to tell me what it means. So, that's a different direction, right, than the notion of trying to read it historically and literally and seeing things in ways that they wouldn't have been understood in the pre-modern period. But it's another, I think, legacy of the Enlightenment that we can see in the church today. Yeah, that's interesting. What we would sometimes think of as a, a modernity versus pre-modernity in the church really turns out to be competing modernities. Yes, I think that's exactly correct. So what are uh, then, talking about competition, what are some tensions or outright disputes between the Enlightenment view and the Christian worldview? Well, one of them is that Enlightenment notion of the ideal of the autonomous human knower. In Scripture, knowledge is always in relationship, and appropriate religious knowledge is seen as being in relationship with God. And so the idea of attaining religious knowledge independent of a pre-existing relationship with God is, is just a-biblical. It's not biblical. It's not necessarily anti-biblical, but it's not consonant with uh, what Scripture tells us about coming to knowledge. Another side of that, and this I think is probably the biggest danger of the Enlightenment ideal, is a diminishment of the notion of human sin and the impact of human sin. So we, we emphasize, for example, in an in introduction to Christian worldview, the ubiquitous uh, and devastating effects of the fall upon human nature, that it affects our relationship with self, with other, with God, and with all of creation. Um, but it affects not just our, as it were, kind of morality and our will, but also our rationality. Um, so I, I sometimes joke, and this sometimes comes across crass, it's not intended to, but that humanity is triply effed up. We are finite, fallen, infallible, right? And so we are fallen. Our mind is affected by the fall such that our thinking if we do it strictly independently, is going to be um, against God. It's not going to arrive at a knowledge of God. It's going to arrive at rebellion against God. And because our minds are finite, there's also going to be much about God that we simply cannot understand. So going back to the medieval um, Catholic philosopher Aquinas, his understanding of different types of truths, I think, is so important for us to hold today, but something that the Enlightenment is going to reject, right? Where Aquinas understands that there are truths that are demonstrable by reason, that is, we can show just via pure human reason that this is obviously true. Then there are truths that are consonant with reason, that is, they're consistent with reason. We can show that there's good reason to think these things are true, even though we can't demonstrate it conclusively. But then there are also truths that are above reason, and these are the most significant religious 
religious truths, the triunity of God, the incarnation of Christ, the way that redemption works. These are divine truths that are true, but they're truths that are inaccessible to pure human reason. We can point to things using human reason that help to make sense of them, but that's very different than arriving at them via reason. Yeah, our, our uh, Civ students know that that point most well, probably through Virgil's guidance of Dante, up to a point at which Beatrice, who represents Revelation, has to take over because the higher things are inaccessible even to the best of worldly reason. Yeah, exactly. And that's part of the beauty of the medieval understanding that knowledge has to be in relationship to God. That without that element of uh, relationship via faith, there are things that we simply cannot know and will never understand. That's a clear conflict. Do you do you see issues or matters in in church life or thought today where that conflict is still being manifested? Probably. One of them, again, is the notion, and this is most prevalent in evangelical life. Um, I, I'm a Baptist by conviction, and so I see it in myself as well as in people that I worship with. Uh, that desire to have people let me think what I want to think and not to bow to tradition or authority. Uh, That is part of that Enlightenment legacy that we see in the Church. Um, The Enlightenment is also about transforming tradition, if not rejecting tradition. And I think we can see that as well in some movements in the contemporary church that say, well, even if this is the way it has been done before, we don't need to do it that way or we don't need to honor that. And so there's many times a failure to honor those who have gone before in the faith, right? To not honor the hall of faith uh, of the book of Hebrews um, and to recognize that there is a wisdom and a reason that things have been done the way they've done, uh, that the church has believed the things that it's believed. So I, I would say those two things are, are some of those kind of leftover elements. Yeah, that's one reason it's so exciting to see some of the work that our colleague Matt Emerson is doing with the Center for Baptist Renewal and uh, sort of bringing those, those resources back so that Baptists don't have to go it alone. Yeah. And, I think another, another legacy, and this is an interesting one because I think it's a, it's, it's almost like a two-headed coin or a double-edged sword. I'm not sure exactly how to put it, but the very, odd relationship between the contemporary church and science where on the one hand uh, you you have you have things that I'm personally very involved in uh, like using contemporary science as uh, evidence for the truthfulness of the Christian faith uh, scientific arguments for God historical arguments for the resurrection and so on uh, which again I embrace fully and so I participate in that and so we recognize like the Enlightenment recognizes the importance and the insights of contemporary science um, but then at the same time you have in many elements of the church a rejection of the consensus of contemporary science in in various areas and some of them where I might myself have questions, uh, some of them I don't doubt the consensus of science but others where I I do wonder Uh, but some of the most obvious ones uh, clearly uh, Darwinian evolution uh, the question of climate change uh, vaccination, the science behind vaccination you know these are kind of three big hot button issues in the contemporary evangelical church so you have again on the one hand this elevation of science even within Christendom 
kingdom that says, yes, we can use science to support the faith. And then on the other hand, but I'm not so sure about the science that uh, contemporary society has for us. Yeah, that's interesting. It's hard to know sometimes what to make of make of those conflicts or, or in fact, when we have... So going back to your point about Thomas, uh, when when we've confused categories and we're making the wrong kind of argument to begin with. Yeah. yeah. So uh, you're an apologist, a philosopher, and uh, so we'd like to get a book on this topic recommended uh, by you. So aside from an introduction to Christian worldview, which of course all our listeners are going to be seeking out, uh, would you recommend a book for us? There's lots and lots of great books on the topic. Two of my favorite, uh, James Sire, The Universe Next Door, is a very accessible introduction to the changing trajectory of the Western worldview. So he begins with Christian theism that we find in the medieval period, and then moves through kind of Enlightenment deism into naturalism, and then into those contemporary worldviews that follow from naturalism. You've got nihilism, um, existentialism, postmodernism, and then a couple of other contemporary worldviews like Islam and New Age and Eastern uh, kind of religion. So it's a fantastic uh, introduction to the way that Western worldview has changed over the last 600 years. It's really, really helpful. Another one, and this is for kind of the armchair philosophers in the crowd, is uh, by Baylor's uh, C. Stephen Evans, and it's just called The History of Western Philosophy, which again is going to track those major changes from the Greek period all the way through to postmodernism in the 20th and 21st century. Great. We'll put those uh, books in the show notes so people can track them down. Dr. Anderson, thank you so much for talking with us. It's been my pleasure. That's it for this episode of The Permanent Things. Remember, you won't find The Permanent Things on Facebook or Twitter, but it would help us out a lot if you'd leave a review of the show wherever you do find it. 